Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, the United Ireland podcast companion series where we talk to brilliant journalists about their work. Suzanne Lynch is the Washington correspondent for the Irish Times, a truly hectic beat that sees the journalist in question not just cover US politics, but also big US stories from around the country can involve a lot of travel, a lot of hours on the clock um, and a lot of expertise in different areas. Uh, Suzanne's early career was in finance journalism. She was also the European correspondent for the Irish Times. She also has a pretty incredible academic background as well. Um, You may have recently read her interview with um, Kamala Harris aboard Air Force Two. And in this episode of Byline, we're going to be talking about what it's like to cover a new era in US politics, whether things are more West Wing than Veep or the other way around uh, within the White House, Press Corps and loads more. So welcome to Byline, Suzanne. Great to be with you, Una. Now, we always start uh, this chat by asking people where and how they grew up and when the trade of journalism came calling. Aha, yes, good question. Well, um, I'm from Trim, County Meath, and um, I went to my local school, school we were in Trim, and I was kind of interested in a lot of things, but mainly my background was music. I used to go to the College of Music every week. My mum was a pianist and music teacher, and I'm the the eldest of four, so we all uh, had a huge emphasis on music education. So we used to, I used to get the bus to Dublin on my own from a very young age to go for music lessons at College of Music. And then when it came to choosing for university, I um, did music at UCD and English. But English was very much kind of, you know, a second subject. I, I liked it, but I was just saying it came up recently that I, I can't even remember my leaving cert results, but I, I did seven subjects and I did the worst in English. But um, when I was in college, I really got into the English literature then, really liked it and um I went on to do graduate work. So my idea was to be, I'd like to have been like an English academic, a professor. Um, But at that time, I was also thinking I'd really like journalism too. Um, So then I went, I eventually got myself to Cambridge University to do a PhD, which was by far the most difficult thing I have ever done, Una. So (laughs) I have so much uh, sympathy for people trying to finish thesis and all that. But um, I, when I was at Cambridge, I uh, started getting involved very heavily in student journalism. And that's really where it began. So um, the student newspaper there is called Varsity. And I started writing book reviews and I kind of became the arts editor. There was like eight blokes, some of them kind of posh public school boy types, and then me. And um, I was doing the arts pages for that. And that was great experience because you were in like, you know, you're in the uh, the office, like subbing, putting things on the page, the, the technical side of producing a newspaper as well. And then when I was trying to finish my PhD, which took me years, which I eventually did finish, I uh, then I uh, contacted, I didn't know anybody in, in media, but I just sent an email to the arts editor of the Irish Times, who was Victoria White then, and suggested there was an exhibition in London about Virginia Woolf, who I was doing my PhD on, and uh, the writer. And or there was, a, I think it was actually a, a collection of essays or something. Anyway, letters. And I said, hi, I introduced myself in the email. And she said, well, okay, if you can do 900 words, yes. 
So that's how I started. I started then producing the odd article for the Irish Times as I was trying to finish my PhD. Um, I always trying to come up with ideas, but mainly art stuff. And then eventually I uh, moved back to Ireland kind of around 2006, 2007. And then I just started trying to get in the door anywhere. And it was it was very hard. I mean, not to, you know, journalism, it's a hard, it's a hard nut to crack. And at that time, I'd arrived back. It was the height of the Celtic Tiger. Um, Dublin was wild. It was decadent. I had people, you know, I was looking around to people, friends of mine, people I'd gone to school with who were like on these massive salaries, you know, driving their flashy cars. I was like, A, I don't like this about Ireland. And B, have I just made a really bad decision in my career? I was trying to get into, get 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 more work as a journalist. And to, subs, you know, to subsidize myself, which I think is a really important part of making it in journalism is, is the financial part of it. I used to do uh, like substitute teaching in different schools around Dublin. And um, my aunt taught in Artane in St. David's. And I did a lot of teaching there, which was a great experience. And that kind of kept me going financially. And then I was doing bits inside. And then eventually I got into RTE. To, you know, I emailed somebody and I got to do shifts on Morning Ireland. So that was great. I did that for about a year and a half. And then the real kind of turning point came. One day they got stuck because it was John Murray, who people might know. Um, he used to present the business program and he used to do business on drive time in the evenings and they were panicking because he couldn't do it one day and I was just kind of a lowly researcher I wasn't that great on the radio, doing radio packages to be honest and they said look he's going to train you in can you come in and do the drive time business news so I said okay and I went in and then I then it opened the door to business journalism and then um, I used to present this bulletin on drive time every Friday on business and at that point, it was getting a really interesting story because Ireland was hitting the crash, the IMF was coming, etc. So business was suddenly like booming, if you like. Yeah. And um, then I contacted I was I had some contacts in the Irish Times from this woman from Victoria and people in the yeah. art section, and then I contacted John Mac. I'm nearly at the end now. Contacted John McManus, the business editor, who's now the op-ed editor, who I'm sure you know. And he's like my mentor because he gave me a chance and said, well, you know, do you want to do a few business shifts? And I said, well, I don't really have a business. I don't really know about business, but I've started doing it. He's like kind of, well, come in and we'll try try and see how you get on. And I never looked back. Then I, I just was coming in doing shifts in the Irish Times for about four years on the business desk. But it so was that, a lot. And then I got a job, the, the Europe correspondent job. Yes, which was yeah. Fantastic. So that's a so, lot of, that that kind of trajectory I suppose might be quite familiar to to a lot of people, like not necessarily formal journalistic training, but yeah. kind of grafting your way um, up, yeah. up and laterally as well into different things. Um, but what was it about Virginia Woolf that um, made you dedicate years to studying a PhD? Yeah, well, when I, when I kind of got found the love for for English in my final year in UCD, I kind of was very interested in modernism, like early 20th century writing. That's what I kind of liked. And obviously in Ireland, there was a huge emphasis on post-colonial literature and ideas of nationhood and that kind of thing. So I decided my PhD topic was, you know, Virginia Woolf and Englishness. Now, as I'm talking to you now, Una, good, like what, nearly 20 years, I suppose, since I started my PhD, obviously with Brexit and everything, like it was not a huge issue back then, 20 years ago. And I can't, I, looking back now, I think, God, some of the stuff I was reading and writing about was all about ideas of Englishness versus Britishness. Um, and, and really the idea that Virginia Woolf, you know, for people who are not familiar with her, she was, she was born in the 1880s, died in 1941, and was one of the big feminist, you know, a huge feminist figure. She And she um, she was a novelist, but she also wrote two big treaties, I suppose. One of them, A Room of One's Own, which is a great read, very easy read, 
not like a lot of our other stuff, which is setting out a kind of feminist theory of literature. But I was saying, well, look, there's all the, lots of feminism about Virginia Woolf, a lot of feminism critic, feminist criticism. But I was looking at how she thought about nationhood. And really, in her writings, she is very critical of, of nationhood as a concept of, of uh, war, of imperialism. She was living through the two world wars. She saw them very much as a patriarchal construct. She argued very cleverly that England, she said, one of her famous phrases, as a woman, I have no country, because she argued that she that her nation didn't allow her to be a proper participant in that civic society because women had to give up their property if they married. You know, they didn't have the right to vote for most of, a lot of her life. Um, but I was kind of, my PhD kind of argued that was the case, but in other ways, she was quite English. So she was also extremely snobby. She was upper class and... I was, I kind of had this whole theory that nationhood, when it comes to the civic idea of a nation state, she argued that she was outside that as a woman. But when it came to the more ephemeral, um, emotive um, and intangible aspects of, of Englishness, like things like language, literature, landscape, she felt very connected. So, for example, she's quotes in her diaries where she's very snobby about T.S. Eliot and even James Joyce, because she says about T.S. Eliot, who was American and was a kind of a wannabe British poet, said, you know, oh, there's not a drop of Chaucer or Shakespeare in him. So she felt very much, even as a woman, she felt left out of the English literary tradition. She also felt very proud and identified very much with this sense of English language and that inheritance that she had, inher- you know, she had had, she was lucky to have as she saw it. So they were mm. the kind of themes I was looking at. And it was, it was fascinating, but it was also difficult. <laughs> It's interesting to go from, you know, studying somebody in the context of of nationhood and how woolly their sense of it might be to then moving as a journalist to the country that is all about nationhood. And, you know, mm. in, in the last um, mm. four years, certainly to, you know, its detriment. But we'll get to America in a second because I'm interested in the in the finance journalism part and what you say about uh you know the 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 cr- basically the crash era or or the mm. the the bits on either side of it and how business journalism became the journalism <laughs> um yeah and did, yeah, like I how mean, was your how was your understanding of economic systems and and the finance system and things like that like not not great to be honest you know like i found like i did okay i was vaguely mathematical i did accountancy for my leaving cert and physics and those kind of subjects so i was kind of mathsy enough but um, I hadn't done, you know, I, I haven't studied economics or anything. But then I found, you know, this is the trick of journalism. And, and, you know, you need to be able to throw your hands at every, anything. And then you need that reflects your interest in everything. So I'm kind of interested in everything. So I was like, oh, when I started looking into it, there was, there was a learning curve, obviously. I was working with people like all our colleagues who are still there in the Irish Times, Simon Carswell, Kieran Hancock, Arthur Beasley, Barry Holland. I was learning from them all, sitting right beside them. John McManus, who's great. And, um, you know, you get the hang of it. You, 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 a lot of it was looking at company accounts, but there's a formula to that. And, um, you know, once you did it once, it became easier. Um, but then it just became this fascinating world. I still find it fascinating. You know, economics is about people. It's about choices you make as a country, as a person. It's about equality and inequality. And it informs so much, you know, politics and history. And, I, you know, I realized... It's probably something to do with the way it's taught in schools. It's often siloed off to the, you know, the final pages of the paper and, and people who are not interested in business or not in the business community in Dublin don't read those pages. 
But in fact, I, I just find it a very interesting topic. Um, and at that time, as a journalist, it was also good because obviously, like the IMF, everyone remembers that you know the IMF was arriving. There was a, this the, the the news story was so kind of compelling. We would literally be in. Um, I mean, I was I was for a while. I was doing these the, the drive time in RTE business slot, and there was lots of times where something would just break. Literally, I remember like the chief executive of Bank of Ireland, somebody you know, just resigned. I'd go straight on air and talk about it, and then the same thing in when I was doing shifts in the Irish Times. What happens with business stories a lot are that their company announcements are made after the markets close, so after five o'clock, and indeed court cases. So we were being sent down. John McManus, the, the business editor, would say, "Right, we're after getting word. Air Aaron is going into administration. The Shelburne Hotel is collapsing. I mean, we need to remember how many businesses it was. It was just awful. All over Ireland were happening, as well as the big story about the banks. And then I would be sent down to the court, the commercial court." or often examinership hearings. And, and the skill or the, dif- the difficulty then was that it was it was evolving very quickly. You had to have your facts right about the figures. Um, and, you know, you only had a few hours to write it before you went to press. So that was a great training. But I suppose, like, I, I really strongly believe this. I think people trying to get into journalism, the, the whole nature of the beast is that, you know, it, it's, it's a cliche, it, you're, it's yesterday's chip wrapper. But it is true. The story is so fast moving. Um, and you need to be have that interest and not be scared, basically, of something that you're not familiar with. Because, you know, what, all of us, if you've got a brain, if you can write, and that's, that's essential. I think that's the other thing in journalism. You have to be able to write and write easily and write well. But then, you know, you, you, you can do the job. It, you know, so I think people should have confidence in that, not be scared of parts of knowledge or parts of the world that they're not familiar with. You mug up on it, and um, and then you learn. I think it, it then better. It definitely better informed me when I went to Brussels, and then when I went to here. Um, at the moment in America, there's lots of stuff about the infrastructure plans, and people kind of tune out. But actually, that's quite interesting, and it's it's actually going could really change American society and make it more equal. Mm. Um, and it's definitely helped me in my work as a journalist generally having that background, which, as I said, I never really had an interest in before then. When you were going in um, to do shifts in the Irish Times, first of all, like for people who outside of newspaper land uh, or journalism mm. land general, what does a shift like that entail? How long is it and what are your yeah. tasks? Yeah, it's a good question. So I was freelancing first. So that meant I would contact someone and say, do you want this article? And they would commission you. But that was very much kind of it was a lot of art stuff I was doing. Um, so then the shift was, was a huge change because it meant I was, so every day they have, say, say the business section had 10 people, for example, it, you know, eight of them maybe are full time. And then they would have maybe two people who come in to do a day's work. So you're paid by the day, it's set by the NUJ. So you go in with newspapers, it's, it's now, I'm talking like well over 10 years ago, it's changed now and online. But when I was doing it, the shifts would start at maybe 11 and finish at seven. So it was all geared towards the end of the day because the deadline for print you know, the print, it goes to press about nine or 10. So I would come in at 11 o'clock in the morning and there'd be a business editor on and they'd be like, right, there'd be certain, as we say in the business, you know, diary thing, something that's on, oh, look, there's a press conference with IBEC or, you know, the minister, whatever, for finance is doing a press conference, somebody has to cover that or company results. You were sent off to do that. And then there'd be a daily market report, but then there would be this breaking news element as well that you don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, it'd be 11 to 7, but usually uh, in later and very much that pressure of writing towards the end of the day. Mm. Uh, that was kind of the the timetable and the schedule. 
And to, to some extent, I mean, now in the Irish Times and elsewhere, there's much more of an integration with online and print. So people are coming in earlier and, and the, the day is geared towards the early day. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is a broader topic. Newspapers are still being printed. Most newspapers are still making money out of the print product. So that's the challenge for me, for everybody. You're trying to do the online stuff, which is obviously very important. But you also have to, if they want a front page for the next day, you also have to prioritize the print. So that's the kind of dynamic we're, we're all still trying to work through. Mm. Um, and, and essentially you need to be able to do both nowadays but yeah so that was a great way because it meant you were in the newsroom people were seeing you and you, you were getting to know people there so I, 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 you probably felt as well in it but like different organisations it's great it's great freedom in one way of sitting at home and writing your article but you are at a remove from everybody whereas I loved being in the newsroom learning from people and just being there and then you kind of got to know people really yeah and for sure and the I suppose an underreported aspect of um, that kind of integration between online and print is that it has a tendency to make um, print journalists have to get up early, which, earlier, which nobody in the industry wide wants. <laughs> Hence, shift starting no. at eleven o'clock. No. Uh, <laughs> um, now, Brussels. Then, when oh, what, I love Brussels. What was what was your jump from um, the business journalism stuff mostly to then um, going to work in in Europe, becoming the European well, correspondent? Kind of a good, yeah, it's a good example. So I was there freelance, or you know, freelancing, but doing my shifts in the Irish Times for about like three and a half, four years at this stage. So I'm pretty established, but I don't have a full time job. I'm now into my early thirties, um, and uh, they advertise for Europe correspondent in the paper. And to the credit of the Irish Times, I went for the job, and I say everyone was like, "Who's this one? She's not even a staff member," and I got it. And looking back now, I think it was this combination. Now, this was around 2013. So Ireland was coming out of the bit, still in the bailout. So there was um, a certain amount of business news was was very, was part of the EU beat. So uh, you were going to have to know something about business really to do the job. Mm. But during my um, interview, I remember, I think it was a fact that I had this broad base that I knew all about the arts you know, I'd done other stuff, all these other features that I wasn't just one dimensional and, and little miss business that I could do other things. And that's, I think, why well, I don't know, but that, that I think stood to me because when I went to Brussels, yes, as I said, there was business element. And then I was there for all like the Apple tax judgment, all that stuff about tax. Obviously, Ireland is very vulnerable on that. And in my mind, you know, it's a real problem for the country. And um, so there was some business stuff. But then there was like, for example, the centenary of World War One of, of you know, it was 2014. So I was doing like great stuff. I went to like Bosnia and, you know, Sarajevo and I wrote a whole piece about the start of World War One from Sarajevo and that kind of thing. So again, I think it was, you know, as broad of a portfolio as you can have is the best because that is the reality. The jobs can change, ebb and flow. And by the time I was leaving Brussels, I was, st- I was there for the Brexit vote. So it was like finance and then there was the refugee crisis that was huge, the Brussels bombings and then Brexit. So it had kind of evolved from just being a, a business beat. But um, but yeah, so that, that's, I think, how I made that transition. But that was huge. Then I kind of felt like I'd made it and and, and absolutely loved the job then when I got there. The refugee crisis you mentioned, um, you know, even though the, the peak of it, I suppose, or the... Um, you know the the massive crossings um, from Syria to Turkey. It, it's funny how news cycles and and geopolitics moves on because we're not really hearing that much about it, apart from um, different things that are happening on Lesbos and so on. But 
Tell me about reporting on that, because that was kind of in and around the peak of the really traumatic stories and images that we were seeing. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. So I could kind of sense that politically there was a debate, a very unsavory debate about immigration. There were, um, I was going to say midterm elections, but not European Parliament elections during the time I was there. And, you know, Marine Le Pen and Geert Wilder, these right wing figures around Europe, you know, were, were commanding support running on an immigration platform. And you had the beginnings of the rumblings of the the dynamics and the debate that was coming into Brexit and that would end up completely feeding into the Brexit vote. So early on, I went to Bulgaria. Um, so I arrived in Sofia and Bulgaria had only recently, well, it was one of the last countries to join the European Union. Um, and then I hired a, a translate, a, a guy who had emigrated himself from, from Syria before it really got bad. But anyway, he was a young guy, fabulous guy. He was now in Sofia in Bulgaria. And I found him through somebody, through an aid agency. And myself and him drove down to this refugee camp, very much to the east of Bulgaria. And it was, I was completely shocked. I mean, it was a full-on refugee camp. He was translating for me. Um, and, you know, all these... It's just what I was struck by that you think when you go to a refugee camp, it's going to be these visions of squalor and people with the weight of the world on their shoulders. Actually, what I was struck by were these vibrant, um, you know, attractive in every kind of way. You know, these young guys in their 20s and 30s with their cool leather jackets teach actually had set up uh, schools, temporary schools. They were teaching all the kids in the refugee camps, just, you know, maths or, or whatever. And they were like just people with the beginning of their lives ahead of them. And, um, you know, you could tell that these people had come from a really functioning society just before the war had happened in Syria. I mean, it was a socialist society, but it was a very functioning, stable part of the world uh, before the war began. And that's what was so shocking to me. To, it, to me, they were just so familiar. You know, you could see them down in Dublin working in Google and, you know, you wouldn't bat an eye. So it was this kind of world that was, it's a bit like, um, you know, prisons or, or, or parts of society that operate in the fringes of society, which none of us see, like direct provision. This was here at the edge of Europe and no one really seemed to care. But then it, it, mer- it started emerging as a, as a bigger issue. Um, and for about 18 months, I did quite a bit of reporting. I then went down to the border between Turkey and Syria. And I remember it's just a kind of funny story. So I kind of uh, emailed my editor, who is now uh, Chris Dooley, still the editor of Foreign Section, and I said, look, the stuff about the big surge at the border of Turkey. And I, I said, I, I've been noting some, some of the other journalists from Brussels I've heard are going down. Should I come down? Go down? He said, yeah. So I got a flight to Istanbul and then got an internal flight and hired a car. And when I got into the car, I realized, OK, I didn't think this through. I have a whole language gap here. I, I know usually you get what you call a fixer, somebody who'd accompany you around and would translate. So I kind of was, I was on my own. And I got into the car and I really couldn't communicate to the guy, the car rental, he gave me this white car. And I said, oh, how do I get it? It was a place called Keys at the border. And he kind of was trying to like communicate to me. And he kept saying to me, just look for the sign for Halep is what he was communicating. And he goes straight down the road and just keep going and, and he'll get there in some two hours. And I, I did that. I eventually got there. And then it was only after I was there for a few hours, I realized, oh my God, Halep is Aleppo. I was on the road to Aleppo the whole oh, time. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I was like, so then I arrived. I was at the border going, I really didn't. So that, at the end of meeting another journalist, and this is what happens as well as a foreign correspondent. You bump into people you can know. I still remember there was a Swedish journalist. I didn't really know that well, but she was from Brussels. And I saw her and we kind of chummed up together. 
So then one of the one of the most moving points of this, I heard I chatted to some age agency people. And at this stage, the refugee camp, I mean, it was it was getting overwhelmed, this new ref- refugee camp. And look, we hear a lot about Turkey, but Turkey took in, I tell you, a lot more people than Europe did from Syria. That's one thing. They took in a huge amount of refugees. Um, and then we went to a safe house, effectively. And I interviewed this guy who had English, a Syrian guy. And I remember, I can still remember, he, he just pointed at his legs. He was sitting down and he kind of moved to his blanket and I realized his legs were gone. And he, had, he was only about 28. He'd stood on a, on a shell on his way over. Um, and he had been transferred to the safe house. So that was that was a really memorable visit. And then also, other people will be, will be familiar with this, Calais. I mean, the re- I went up to, the, people remember that just before Brexit, the, the scenes of, of the refugee camps at, the, at the Calais, people trying to get over to England. They were horrendous, some of the scenes there. They're worse than anything I saw in Turkey or Bulgaria. Um, and that was right up to, you know, before the Brexit vote. Um, and look, you know, I mean, it's another debate, but like, I mean, I think Ireland has been very minimal in what it's done for the for refugees, you know. Um, there was a whole debate then in Europe about dividing out how many countries wanted to take the refugees. And um, Merkel took a stand. Uh, she went against a lot of people in her country as a moral issue. But, you know, our figures aren't great and we all know about direct provision. So I think... We sometimes pat ourselves on the back, but we need to actually look at how much we are actually doing for these people. Mm. Thinking about being on the road to Aleppo that time, that at that time, um, the reason that I said, "Oh Jesus," was I was just thinking about around that time the the massive security concerns that there would have been for journalists. Um, and you were saying you're on your own. I mean, did that factor in at all? That that may not have been ideal. Yeah, I I was actually really scared. I shouldn't have done that. Um, and I know. Um, my other half actually worked in TV and the BBC for years. And like he, you know, they, they go on training all the time. You know, the whole idea is that you always have a buddy that somebody's looking at your back. So, you know, I wouldn't do that again, really. But there is something about traveling on your own as a woman. Um, and I get it here, even on the road. Like I just kind of arrive up with no camera in anyone's face. And it's quite, I, I, I come across, I think it's quite unthreatening. Um, I mean, there's a whole gender dimension. Virginia Woolf would not like what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say that, like, perceived weakness is a good thing. But that actually is what happens. That people will kind of start talking to you. They don't see me as threatening. I'm small. I'm five foot. I just come up and, and, and they underestimate me, I suppose. Or they think, oh, she's not a threat. Where if I was, like, a big burly guy with a camera and a suit, I probably wouldn't get the same. They, they would immediately recoil. So there is something to be said for that, that this kind of unobtrusive going on your own where I've had a big paraphernalia with me. It'd be different. But yeah, they're, they're, I mean, there are huge security concerns around there. And, and I, I learned a bit from that. I, I, and then the stress of trying to drive, it was crazy uh, my, myself. And so, yeah, I, I, I would not do that again. How are you feeling when you were coming back from Brussels? Like, obviously, Europe was changing. Um, the EU was changing massively with regards to its uh often very ham-fisted and in some cases completely tragic um, response to this this refugee crisis in particular. Um, the UK, you know, was in kind of existential freefall in and around the referendum. Like, how, what was your assessment of how the EU was as an entity before you went and then when you were coming back four years later? Well, I think <clears throat> there's a lot of negativity. I mean, we could all talk about when I went there first, it was all the bailout was still happening. And I covered the Greek crisis. I was in Athens. That was my first year. 
and being at those endless summits where the Greeks were kind of pressurized basically by the bigger countries. So that was all happening. And, and you, but I mean, really what that was about ultimately the Euro crisis was the flaw that is inherent in the idea of a single currency. At the end of the day, this is the problem for Europe. They want to be more integrated, but the countries don't want to be that integrated. So you kind of have this halfway house where you have a single currency. But the logic really of a single currency is that you should have a single finance minister. You know, you should have, and nobody wants that. So I think they're grappling with that. There, there's, a, there's a flaw in the structure of the euro, I think, that's there. And it's, it's happening. It's happening. That's always a problem for the EU. Logically, to work, it needs to be one big entity. But no, countries don't want that. And citizens don't want that. So I think they're always pushing against that, and it's a problem. And um, we see it now with the, with the COVID vaccination thing, that, you know, the limits of it. Um, uh, so I did, so I saw a lot of problems with the EU. Then I saw, I was there for the, for the Brexit vote. And, um, you know, I was in a pub um, called the Hairy Canary, <laughs> which people who visited Brussels, it's beside the, the Berlimont, the big, you know, the Inhuman and the faceless EU building. So I was there that night of the Brexit vote with lots of British journalists. And British That's officials. an ama- a really amazing pub name, it has to be said. Yeah, the Harry Canary and the Funky Monkey is beside us, but um, they're f- fantastic. So I was there with all the British, because this is what happens when you're, I, well, it's going to be different now, but when, it's funny, the press corps in Brussels, like we all kind of fulfil our national stereotype. Like we, I ended up with the Irish journalists kind of hanging around with the British and, and the North, you know, the Danish and Finns with the really good English. And it kind of, so for some reason, we were kind of culturally connected. And then, you know, it, it, everybody fulfilled their stereotypes in one way. It was like this microcosm of the EU within the press corps. Um, and, but I remember being there and the sense of shock as it was happening and the British officials going, oh my God, it's happening, it's happening. And um, I mean, God, we could talk about Brexit all day, but that sense that nobody saw that coming. And at, at the time, it is true to say that it was a huge existential issue for the EU. First time ever a country had voted to leave. So I was writing, you know, the next morning, you know, this is a big blow to the European project. Now, as we know, we're now more than four years on, you know, the EU has got its own problems, but it doesn't seem to have been rattled that much by Brexit. Um, in, in fact, that might have taught other people a lesson. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, that, you know, this is the reality if you decide to leave the European Union. We'll see how that plays out and will there be further countries. But I, to be honest, I felt a real sadness because I see, I saw day to day that, Ultimately, Ireland and Britain, when, when it comes to policy, you know, we're, we're, we're very aligned on, every, on, on lots of things. And the idea that Britain was leaving, like Ireland, you know, I was worried about Ireland being part of this, you know, big European continental project where, and people don't like to have this conversation, but there are moves towards greater defence cooperation in Europe. There absolutely are. And people are dismissive, oh, it's never going to happen. I know we have a veto, but that's like the leaders of France and Germany want that. The people of France and Germany, in some cases, want that. So let's see where we are in 50 years. But um, I think some of the debate now, like it all got so, it got, got so bitter around Brexit. But the binary, the Europe, Europe is great and Brexit is bad, I don't, is a bit too simplistic, I think. And there are still obviously big problems with the EU. Even though I'm sounding anti-EU here, I mean, I'm, I'm pro-EU. But that's why it's important to have reporting from there to, to just cover what, what's happening all the time in Brussels because it, it is so important. It does affect policy decisions in Dublin like every day. So it, it's a huge part of how our country is run. Mm. I think as well that like, obviously from an Irish perspective, we've just been steeped in Brexit uh, for the last four years or, or nearly or near coming up in five years now. Um, whereas, you know, my impression is from from talking to 
you know, journalists in, in France or Germany, you know, their, their relationship with it is like, while we were still discussing all of the very complex things around uh, the Northern Irish Protocol, for example, or all of those things need to be worked out, other folks in in the, in Europe and in the EU were just like, why is this even still a thing? Like it happened, it's over, let's move on. Yeah, exactly. That's that's absolutely true. So we are, we are, and that, that might become a problem now. Let's see what happens in Northern Ireland. But I think people need to keep sight of other things that the EU are doing on defence or, or whatever um, that affects us also as a member of the EU um, and not see it through just this one prism, even though it is hugely important to us. But yeah, that's very true. So the... Um the, the Washington correspondence job comes up every four years, every five years. Yeah, I'm on, yeah, it depends really. I'm probably on my final stretch here at the moment. And so the previous correspondent was Carswell, was it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And w- did you always want to, want to go to the US to cover American politics? Was this something that you thought was like that you had your sights on or was it, you know, something that you became in, enamored with or or what was your perspective yeah, of I that gig? It's not like I don't have the obsession with America that I see some people have. Like I not not particularly. I was very interested. I'd done a couple of J1 visas here um and spent two summers here. So you know I felt in a way I not that I'd done America, but so because of that I didn't have this huge hankering that I needed to go to America. But you know it was kind of an obvious like in the Irish Times before me people had gone from Brussels to Washington. Um, and it was kind of it was kind of the right time. I was very happy in Brussels, and I would have liked to have stayed in one way. But you know, this is life as well. People with careers, you know. I read this thing. Sorry to digress. Um, about in Obama's biography, where he went to meet Teddy Kennedy in the Senate when he wanted to run for president, and he said, "What am I going to do? Do I think I'm too young to run for president?" And Edward Kennedy says, um, "You know, you don't pick the time; the time picks you." And I thought it was very interesting when we're making life life decisions. Sometimes you just have to go for it, even if it doesn't really, you can overthink things. So when the Washington job came up, I was like, well, I'm kind of well-placed now. If I go back to Dublin, maybe, you know, other when it comes around again, you know, I could be against really good people from the paper, whereas I felt I had more of a chance to get it this time around. So that, being honest, that was, it was, it was very much a career progression reason I went, to be entirely honest, and like take my chance to go. So, and but it's hard. I mean, this is the problem with, you know, I personal like you know, you have to move your personal life. You know, you're like, I'm just getting settled here. Should I go? But I, anyway, I did. Um, but it does take long. You know, it's it's hard to move to a new country on your own, and and you know, start. You're just there on your own. You're you don't have any colleagues, and you have to start from scratch. So, um, so explain that. Like, what what year did you move over, and what prep were we you doing before you went over? Oh, hardly. Any. So I went, um, I came, we were, weren't that organized. So the Irish Times, like I did the interview with the Irish Times in December 2016, just after. The, so in November, I knew the job was coming up, so I had my eye on it. And then the Trump election happened. And like everybody else, I was in Brussels, actually at the EU embassy in Brussels, horrified, saying, and I really did think, do I want to go to this country now? You know, do I? I obviously, like everybody else, thought it was going to be Clinton presidency. So then I did the interview with the Irish Times in December and I got the interview. And then I went um, on the 1st of February then. So I moved directly really from Brussels to America and arrived in Washington. Simon was here. We did a handover a few days, which was great and really important. And it's funny. It's like when you take over from someone, you kind of inherit their life. Like I still got like, 
I think I still got Simon's wife's hair dryer. Um, <laughs> you know, one of his, so you end up like becoming really close to the person you've taken over from. <clears throat> the same with Arthur Beasy, who I took over from from Brussels. Um, so I arrived here. He had a house, I had to find an apartment. It's very expensive in Washington. Um, but all the madness of Trump was happening. So I was a little bit, one of the differences and one of the kind of the negatives, if you like, was that in Brussels, when you're a correspondent for one of the, you know, an EU paper um, in a member state, you get great access. You're, you're brought to the briefings with Juncker or whoever, or Tusk. Um, and you were, you know, uh, there was stuff happening that was directly affecting Ireland. You know, I have breaking stories about the Apple case or whatever's happened to the IMF or refugees that would be going on the front page of the paper. Whereas when I came to America, I realized this is different. I am not an American journal. I'm not part of the system. I'm an outsider. I'm a kind of more of a traditional foreign correspondent now. So I was, that was a, and it's still, you know, access is the issue. Now, you're, I can't believe I'm about to say this when I start saying in fairness to Trump, but what I'm <laughs> going to say is Trump, ironically, uh, who he actually was obsessed with the media in one way. So we, we actually got quite good access because he would have talked to anybody. And so the White House, everybody was on the White House list. I could go into the press briefings, go into, you know, so I was actually pleasantly surprised at that um, when I arrived here. And, but then it just came, like, it was just complete madness, as everyone knows. I was just like thrown in the deep end and it was just the stress of every day something would come up and just break like this massive news story. And the other big challenge here is the time difference. So it's five hours behind so, you know, a big development might happen at 2 p.m. here or, or sorry, 4 p.m. here, which is 9 p.m. in Ireland. And then I, I was literally in the in situation where they were stopping the press in Dublin. And I'm like frantically writing, trying to change sentences they're putting on the page because of the time difference. So, I mean, it was great. It's been a, a fantastic story, but it was it, 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 just the news demands were very different because of the time difference, actually. It, it, and everybody says that it, and, and there's no way around it. But the time difference is always a killer. Mm. And what is the, like, how do you become, like, the, the dynamics or this, this structure of the, the, what is called the press core of, of the White House, but that actually means kind of various different things. Like, how would you characterize that? How does it work? How do you get in? How do you yeah. make sure you're in the, at the briefings? Yeah. Well, I kind of made, because I'd come from Brussels where I was at every briefing and I kind of went, the EU has a briefing every day. I kind of thought it was going to be the same thing in, in America. So I was like, right, how do I go to the briefings? And then I realized a lot of foreign correspondents just don't go because to be fair, it's the issue with the time difference. When the briefings are on around two, you're trying to write your stuff. So I, I can kind of see that. So it's a bit like Brussels in the sense that I realized it's almost like there are different power centers in Washington. That's what's going on in the White House. It's what's going on in Congress. It's what's going on in the State Department. So under Trump, it was all about the White House because he was obviously this wild figure who was now in the White House. So that's where the power, I think if I was here at a different time, you might be down in Congress a bit more, which is like going to the doll. It's pretty open. You know, you can go in and out. And so um, what you did, what I found out myself, um, I joined the White House Correspondents Association. Um, one reason being that I really wanted to go to dinner, which I did do, which is fantastic. <laughs> and... Um, they, they've been really good. So they have, you just join them, it's a nominal fee. And then if you, you know, you have to prove you're kind of a proper, you know, you're, you're representing a paper and then uh, you're a member. And in one sense, you're treated like everyone else, but actually that press room you see on the TV, that's very small. So pre-COVID, say there's about 50 seats there. They, they all kind of, there's a real hierarchy, an unwritten hierarchy um, about, you know, I realized I sat in a seat and someone kind of told me to get out of the seat kind of thing. So I found it, it is a bit snooty, 
Um, one of the big differences, absolutely, is the, the dominance of TV here. You know, if you're on the TV here, you're made, you've made it. And the TV channel, the TV networks get kind of more access. Um, they're, they're the dominant voice. Like obviously, the New York Times and the Washington Post are very important, but, but that's, the, that's the dynamic here. Um, so I was part of the foreign core, but in a way, and does not meant to sound nationalistic, but because I'm an English speaking correspondent, it's different. I'm again, kind of lumped in with the British and the Australians and the Canadians to extent, although they're very closer, but then you've got like whole, you know, I'm friends with a Spanish journalist from, from Catalonia, you know, and there's, you know, Czech and German and whatever, you know, I don't see them as much. They, they kind of do their own thing. Um, and I think I probably get more access because I'm writing in English, to be honest. Uh, so I used to go to the briefings. Trump would have these mad rants where he'd have a, a foreign leader, and I used to get. To, I didn't get to all of them, but you know when Macron was visiting, you know, or Turkish, you know, when there were foreign leader, I used to kind of get into them. So I was pleasantly surprised at that. Now since COVID, it's different. It's more restricted. But again, I've been here just over four years now, and they, I've now this is how I got the Kamala Harris gig to go on the Air Force Two. But because of basically keeping at it, I had contact, I'd gone to, they would have AGMs and meetings for the White House Correspondent Association. And I asked a few times, they have this system called the pooler, the press pool, who is a small group of journalists that would follow Biden into the Oval Office or like basically follow him around all day. And then they take notes of what he says. And then all the people on the list of the White House Correspondent Association, including me and all of the journalists, get emails, live emails during the day going, he's just gone into the Oval Office. He said this, that and the other. So I have been added now. I'm a pooler for the VP, the second tier. So I'm not. I'm never going to be in the first tier, but I'm in. I'm now the vice president. So I have been added to this, to this list, which are mostly Americans. Where I now go in and follow her if she's doing an event. Not always. I can kind of, uh, you know, you have to um, volunteer and then be chosen. But I go in and say she says something. It's kind of stressful because she's talking and I have to transcribe it very quickly, get the gist of it, and email it out to everybody. And because of that, then they said, oh, she's doing a trip. On Air Force Two. Now, I won't disclose the price, but you have to pay for that for Air Force Two. All journalists who get on these Air Force, their, their networks. And someone had told me before, I mean, the money here in media, CNN and all these people, their profits, hundreds, hundreds of millions a year. And, you know, to go, I've been told to go on an Air Force One trip to Asia. Somebody told me that um, one of one one trip, now it was, I think, to a few countries in Asia, so maybe it was a week-long trip, but it cost 100 grand per person to go on that trip. Wow. And some networks were sending four people. So, obviously, obviously, obviously the Irish Times is not going to do that. Um, but this was different. This was a short trip to Connecticut, so it kind of suited. But, um, but the, the money in, in media here is is phenomenal. There's a whole, so, that issue, I mean, I think it's amazing journalism, the New York Times, the Washington Post, but that, I mean, their profits, which is great. I mean, the New York Times, they have a huge amount of staff, you know, it's, they have like, you know, the people on a beat where they might have to write once a week or something. Yeah. So there's a whole resourcing issue around journalism, obviously, but a lot of the American networks and newspapers are very, very well resourced. Before we get to, we'll go back to um, Kamala and Biden in a second, um, Harris and Biden, but like that period of time um, in the Trump haze, um, you know, from talking to American journalists, um, it was, you know, extraordinarily testing, emotionally demanding. Like you, you, you mentioned that thing of like getting up every day and there's like another crazy, 
you know, he- like head spinning um, story that's unfolding. Um, and then, of course, the whiplash was part of the culture as well, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. that was being propagated by accident or design or incompetence or whatever. But like, how did you cope during that? Was it, you must have been yeah. wrecked like all the yeah, way through. Yeah, however, like, you see, you can get very emotionally connected. I mean, I was trying to be objective as I could. Like, in the Irish Times, we've got like our straight reporting and then I could do opinion pieces where you can be more opinionated. Um, so you were trying to, I mean, how do you even handle Trump? I mean, that was, that was a question everyone was talking about. I remember once, uh, it was really early on, it was the first year in, in June. I was only here a few months and I went to, again, I was able to get into these things. I went to the, with the press conference in the Rose Garden and it was the day he pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And uh, ironically, it was a roaring hot day and um, he just stood there and he got up, came in and all his kind of staff stood up and applauded him. And then he went on this kind of rant about the climate change thing. And I actually looked around and the American journalists all around me were just, were, they looked really upset. They were just, when it finished, he just got up and left and everyone was silent. They did not know what to say. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if this was my country. And I fell for them. And I think when you're not American, you don't feel it the same way. I was able to kind of look at it at all. Not that it's a joke, but you're analyzing, going, oh, it's outrageous. But I remember that feeling that day. I'll never forget it. And they had to turn around on, into their TV cameras and start talking. But they were all horrified. It was a particularly bad rant by him. And I was also there the day of the Jim Acosta thing, where mm. Jim Acosta and him at the It was awful. I mean, it felt like I was just sitting there going, you know, if this, is, if this was Angela Merkel or David Cameron, or, you, know, or, you know, it would never happen. This is outrageous. And just the, the sense of, of threat and, and danger in there. So but I, I do think that's what I think. I think it's different if you're American. That's what I've, I've kind of concluded. It, it's worse. And I, I, it must be very, very difficult um, for those people to have to have de- dealt with them day in, day out. Did you notice a lot of people getting out of journalism um, at the end of, of that term because of um, exhaustion and things like that? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's also a, a contradiction in that, like it was good for media. You know, that people, I mean, this ethical issue, but that's the, that's the truth. And that like, you know, I'm feeling sorry for some of these journalists in America, but I suppose one could argue, you know, Fox News, which is just, I mean, people should sit down and watch Fox News because it's worse than you think it's going to be. But also, you know, that's a whole other debate. CNN and other MSNBC are also biased. I mean, you've got a much more bias going on in the media, particularly on TV here. And obviously, obviously they, they benefited from that. Um, so... I don't know. I mean, I think my experience in America has been tainted a bit by living here during the Trump years because, you know, as a country, we all have positives and negatives, but the negatives were to the fore. And I remember, this sounds very negative, I went down to cover, um, it was one of the awful shootings. It was after the Parkland, Florida shooting. Now, it was about a month later and um, I went, I got into, I went to a gun show and it was like a, a marketplace selling guns. And I was absolutely shocked. And I got back into the car. I uh, interviewed all these people and I was driving late. It was down through Florida. And then I had an audiobook. I do you know how I do this because I never use audiobooks. But it was that book, The Underground Railroad, mm. which is horrendous. Anyway, there's scenes in it that and at one point it comes to this really crisis scene that I won't that I won't spoil for people, but it's it's horrific. It's about slavery basically in America. And I actually had to pull in the car going, this country, this is crazy. I mean, I've just been to a gun show and this is the history. The, 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 all these negatives kind of coalesced. Um, 
But like, that's what I think. I feel so many people here upset that Trump, you know, did define them for so long. And it's not all about that. But I felt I, just by definition, I was here at that time when that kind of the, the, the bad bits of America were to the fore. Um, they're still there, obviously, it hasn't gone away with him. But no, the fact he's not on Twitter and, you know, there is a sense here, I think, that he's receded. I know he's still there, but, you know, it's like politics or life. People move on. I think they are moving on from Trump here. Mm. I know for myself, um, you know, after the election, that interminable, you know, five days where everybody was just like walking around this infinite staircase of CNN uh, (laughs) coverage, trying to like wait for it to be over, things to be called. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of Europeans you know, who are interested in current affairs made a personal call at that point to just be like, I'm I'm stepping away from this shit show for a while. I mean, I know even myself that I'm kind of when people talk to me now about, you know, things that are things that Biden's doing, you, you know, I'm kind of blank, to be honest, because there comes a point where you have to check out. Obviously, mm. you can't do that because you're the yeah. Washington correspondent. But yeah. in terms of the, how your job has changed um, yeah. now that Biden's in there. Ha, yeah. ha, is there a massive difference? There is really, Una. There is. It's just that, you know, the, the news agenda w- was driven so much by Trump's, you know, personnel decisions or tweets. And now it's just gone back to boring, like today. So one of the things we get as being a member of the White House press corps that I am, because through this White House Correspondent Association, is that every evening, you know, you get guidance of what's happening the next day. And like today, this is why, you know, today, like he's meeting with advisors at 10 o'clock. Then he's talking about his infrastructure plan with a few congressmen. None of that is really, you know, it's fine. It's happening. It's important. But that's kind of what he's doing now. And um, as a result, yeah, it it has completely changed. Now, I do have to say because of COVID, things are different anyway. So I suppose it's hard to judge. Like Washington is still closed down a lot. So I'm not really comparing like with like. Maybe if the whole place was open, it would be different. No, undoubtedly, the news agenda has has completely decelerated. Um, and, and Biden has obviously made the strategy to just roll on this. I'm, I'm a figure of calm and I'm not going to be pressurized into doing more media interviews if I don't want to. Um, and I'm happy with that. And now we've got into this, this zone, which is much more relaxed. So, yes, I mean, it may mean that I'm able to go out around the country and report on more things. Like I was writing this Sunday about this Saturday and I didn't get down there, but there was a union vote in Alabama to join Amazon, mm. um, Amazon in, in Alabama. And anyway, the union drive was defeated. But there are all these interesting stories that are going on in America about life and society that I think got shuttered out because of the Trump chaos. Do you think that um, this kind of narrative that's emerging that while Biden sold himself as like, I'm a straight down the middle kind of guy, Actually, the things that he's doing are quite radical, perhaps even more, um, I don't know, however you want to quantify it on a spectrum, like yeah. progressive or left wing yeah. than people expected, maybe even more than like Warren would have done or whatever. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting. So like the figures suggest he is. Now, whether that was like a strategy, I don't know. But yeah, you, you remember during the Democratic debate, I went around and covered that, the, sorry, the primaries and who was going to be the candidate. And then, you know, Biden, you know, produced this Lazarus moment where he won Super Tuesday and everyone got behind him. Um, and there's always been, and there still is, a, a big divide in the Democratic Party here about the centrist, like the idea to win the country is to, is to plough the centre ground and people like Bernie Sanders and AOC are too left-wing. Like That's kind of the debate that's been there. But it was, it was even more, it was so divisive during the Clinton versus Sanders campaign. 
So, you know, Joe Biden, the centrist, won the day is, is the way the narrative goes. But in fact, what he's done since has been, you know, it, it's not flashy, but it's quite progressive. I mean, I, I was looking into this a bit, this infrastructure plan, like I got a check in the post. Now I got it under Trump as well, about like they're sending checks to Americans and um, COVID payment plans. Now the whole economic debate that that's not equitable because wealthy people are just going to save it and it's going to exacerbate the divide, which I think is true. But he's also plowing in. So they already passed some stimulus packages last year and he's done another uh, few trillion in another, like this huge money. And one of those things, they've expanded child credit, a tax child credit. But some people are saying this is this is one of the most, you know, revolutionary for America in terms of tax and help, direct help for parents and children in, in decades. Um, so if that's going to, if, if he's able to kind of continue on that. So there's a whole economic argument now that obviously all governments are spending more because of COVID and America is too. So Bernie Sanders is quite a, it's, it's a very interesting character now. He he had always, it was always clear that he got on better with Biden than he did with Hillary Clinton. But he is now, he's been in the Senate for years and he's a chair of the Senate Budget Committee. He's got a very important, like the Republicans are horrified that Bernie now is in this position of power. But he is, he has come along with Biden and he's worked with him. And he wanted to get this federal minimum wage passed, which wasn't $15 an hour, but they couldn't pass it if they put that in because a lot of Republicans would have voted against it and some Democrats... And he's still going to try and fight that fight. He probably, hopefully he will get that. But it, it, basically, Biden has so far managed to bring these progressives with him who are happy with what he's doing. Now, COVID, I suppose, gives everybody the fig leaf to say, oh, look, the economy is affected. Um, let's plow money in. But, you know, it's a good sign. It, it's better. And, and the other thing is that Democrats have control. They're very, very slim majority, but they do in the Senate. So that's allowing them to do more. So Biden, you know, doesn't have to convince as many Republicans to vote with him. So I think there is something in that. But like we are early days. We're only the first few months in. I mean, on social issues, um, very, I mean, he's, he's interesting, you know, the whole abortion debate. He's obviously somebody who has, let's say, evolved. He was anti-abortion in the early part of his career. I mean, he's been around for decades. Um, he's very much, you know, a woman's right to choose now. Um, he, he is very progressive on things like, um, you know, gun for, for here, gun crime, um, he's against the death penalty, um, those kind of things. So, but then you're getting into a whole debate about how much can you do? It's all going to be courts and will he get, oh yeah, one of the things he said now is that he's going to set up a commission to look at how you appoint Supreme Court justices. That mm. in itself is quite a radical move, but yeah. whether it'll actually result in anything, who knows. One of the um, things that you have to your benefit now from your background, uh, that will be an unfolding issue both in the US and for Ireland, is this uh, discourse around tax. So, I mean, you were working on the Apple tax stuff in in Europe. You have the um, business journalism background and you are the Washington correspondent. And we see things um, rolling now with regards to um, what Biden wants from American companies and, and where he may want to be. Now, I know Trump was a bit like about that yeah. as well, but from a kind of more yeah. nationalistic perspective. Um, and we, I was listening to an episode of The Daily the other day about the Bristol Myers Squibb stuff. I know, yeah. So yeah. how do you think that's evolving? Because obviously, you know, people on the left in Ireland and actually not like a lot of, you know, economists for years have been like mm. FDI, you know, the chickens will come home to roost at some mm. stage. What's mm. your take on all that from over there? 
Yeah, look, I think, I mean, personally, I feel quite, I mean, I'm not supposed to have that many opinions, but I, I do have an opinion on this. I mean, I think it's, I I think it's, it's. I think Irish corporate tax rate is, is a disgrace our system. And the, and the problem is, it's not 12.5%, as everyone knows. It's actually less. The effective corporate tax rate is less than that. So, you know, the idea that companies don't pay their fair share of tax and that a Google or somebody or certain countries can pay 3% tax and yet Irish people in this case are, you know, still paying extra taxes in some cases from the, the bailout. I think it's wrong. I think it's morally wrong. What Ireland has decided as a country to do a, a pact on that and it, it is decided it's not worth it. We, do, we don't care. Whereas I found like in, in other countries, people in Germany and France can't understand that. Like they just can't understand it. They said, you know, why don't you want com- companies to pay more? They just don't get that. But I, I think it's, I don't think the left has been strong enough, to be honest, in Ireland, honest. Um, but I do think there is the argument um, whether, so I think it, there's, a, there's a right and wrong issue. In terms of actually will his changes affect FDI into Ireland? I, I suppose, I mean, it, it is spin when the, you know, when the IDA and everyone says, oh, it's the educated workforce and, you know, we're English speaking. The reason all these companies came to Ireland was, was tax. That is like non-disputable. That is the only reason. Now, it is true that now that they are here and some of them have been here for decades, I do agree that I can't see them moving out because they do have the educated workforce. They do have the English speaking stuff. They do have, they ploughed money, like Bristol Myers Squid or these big, um, you know, fighter plants. Like they ploughed money into creating actual facilities. They're not just going to upshift and move back to America and start creating a new factory in Ohio. You know, it's just not worth their while, even if they have to pay more tax. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a massive threat to Ireland at the moment in terms of jobs. But I think you know, reputationally, I mean, Ireland's been mentioned here all the time. It's negative. We're pretty isolated on the tax issue across the board. There are very, very few com- countries that are on our on our side on this. So um, the now the one one other kind of positive, if you're the government, is that um, this issue came up during COVID because it turned out a lot of the drugs that were being made and the PPE was were being you know exported imported by America. Um, the whole anti-China thing that's happening at the moment um, by the Biden administration probably means that Ireland can set itself up as an alternative to China. In other words, well, why don't you keep doing business with us? Because we 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 don't have the human rights issues that China has, and we're like you, we're a like-minded country, is the phrase. So, ironically, this clampdown might help Ireland in that sense because I think a lot of it is uh, targeted at China. But in terms of technically, what's going to happen? Um, they, he does have to get stuff through Congress, which will be hard. And then uh, he's proposed a minimum corporate tax rate for all companies, which is the problem for Ireland. Ireland has been saying it's working at OECD, so it will continue to do that. Um, but I think change is coming. But I suppose, I, you know, on balance, I think particularly the more long-established companies at this stage, I don't think they're going to, just going to get out of Ireland at this point. But I think it's a wake-up. I think there's a denialism in Ireland. Oh, but sure, we have our FDI. You know, it, it's our right. We're very unusual in that sense. Most of the countries don't do that. Um, and I think, you know, the country, we need to ask ourselves about the morality of that when so many people are being heavily taxed and, you know, the public services are reduced in Ireland that a lot of these companies are getting away with paying hardly anything. I think it's wrong. Mm. And finally, um, before you go, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, journey uh, through through your career and your great work. Um, but what's next? Oh, I don't know. This is the big thing. I don't know. I'm at a bit of a crossroads. So, um, I mean, I've been a lot, I'm like nearly nine years out of Ireland um, now. So some people would say, you know, it's like 
I know people are working some of the tech companies and say, oh, they need to bring you back to the mothership to kind of, you know, um, make sure you're not straying too too far. Um, so I don't know. I'm here for the, the rest of the year. Um, I suppose if I'm honest, I wouldn't mind, um, you know, doing something. I love writing and it, I, it doesn't take much out of me in one sense. But I wouldn't mind maybe doing some editing or like, you know, more, to use the awful phrase, helicopter, but, you know, doing some kind of a, you know, where I'm dealing with other people's stuff a bit. Like it is quite isolating. You, you know, you're just writing stuff yourself. Um, like journalism is a bit like that. It's not that collaborative. We, we produce a paper or a product at the end of the day, but, you know, I'm on my own here writing. Um, and it's great. I get like, that's, and I'm not just saying this, but it is great with the Irish Times. I mean, I, I remember Times in Brussels, British journalists, and they'd ring their desk in London and they'd basically be told what to write. If I witnessed that, they'd be like, this is what's happening. And they're told by the desk, no, this is what's happening. Whereas, you know, I'd never get that. You get great freedom. But yeah, maybe doing something kind of more editing or something like that would be something that would attract me. Um, I mean, I like writing opinion, you know, more analytical things. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating time to be in America in saying that. So, um, but yeah, I, I will see. But I've been now, I'm into my ninth year away from Ireland. So it, I do feel sometimes quite removed. Mm. Uh, and watching, when you're watching politics from afar and quite interesting what's happening in Northern Ireland, obviously at the moment too. Um, but the international beat is great, I have to say, Una. It's going to be hard to leave that behind. Maybe another posting, if there was one available, would be another option. Suzanne, thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's been really great and looking forward to reading um, all of the stuff that, that now that now that um, the massive bonfire has been somewhat quenched, uh, that you'll be able to um, scoot around from state to state. Uh, always enjoy your writing and thanks so much for joining me on this. Thank you. Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash, exclusive, here's front page news. You tell me what you know and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline.